0: Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 231 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'm excited about today's conversation because I've got some of my favorite people in the world joining me for it. We've got the entire Rogue Expeditions team, Allison, Gabe, and Sean joining me to talk about a new book called Venture, the Rogue Expedition story to tell the story of Rogue Expeditions, which started back with a trip to Morocco in 2012. Rogue Expeditions is a sister company to Rogue Running, where we provide unforgettable running adventures all over the world to nine different destinations, from Morocco to Patagonia to Ireland to Slovenia and Croatia to British Columbia, Tahoe, and Oregon. And if you haven't been on a trip, you should put it on your bucket list. Pretty cool. And today we will hear directly from the Rogue Expeditions team While they haven't been able to do trips during the pandemic, they wrote a book about the Rogue Expedition story, which has a lot of great storytelling about how the business was started, but also some of the cool running stories from the trips themselves. I think you'll like it. It goes on pre-sale May 1st. We'll talk about that at the end, about how you can get access to it. And of course, I'll include a link to where you can get that book in the show notes. You'll remember Allison because she is a four-time previous guest on episodes 223, 39, and 207. She's a three-time Olympic trials qualifier and just an all-around business and running badass. Her husband, Gabe, is her partner in crime in the business. He's a kayaker, a mountain biker, and he's the spreadsheet guru who makes all the financial things work. And then Sean is one of their guides and helps manage the operations of the business and get things done as they pull off trips. He actually has a background in producing Spartan obstacle course races in Europe. We'll hear about his story a little bit as we go. I'm gonna jump into this conversation to talk about the Rogue Expeditions journey where you get a little taste of what you will find in the book. And I think there's some interesting lessons in here, not only for business, but for life and running as well. And it's a fun conversation with these three. So we'll jump right in with Allison, Gabe, and Sean. Here we go. Welcome, Allison, Gabe, and Sean to the Running Rogue Podcast. How are you guys doing today? Start with you, Allison.
1: I'm good. Here in beautiful Bend, Oregon. Finally feels like springtime. We're going to hit 75 degrees today, so... Wearing a tank top for the first time
0: in nice. a year. <laughs> nice, and you're getting some much-needed space from Gabe, who's in the other room. <laughs>
2: yeah, you, you good? I'm good. When you live and work together, you gotta you gotta find that time apart.
0: <laughs> Zoom calls in separate rooms is your your safe haven.
2: <laughs> I figure the audio is a little better.
0: Yeah, and Sean, where are you coming to us from?
3: Uh, I'm home in Ireland. I'm on the farm. i um, glad to have plenty of uh, sort of unlimited free labor time at home on my family farm. So yeah, the pandemic sort of doesn't exist here.
0: <laughs> they're, they're taking full advantage of you, exactly. I'm sure. So good to have you. This is really the, the full-time Rogue Expeditions team. And we're here to talk about a book that Sean wrote, with many stories shared by Allison and Gabe about the Rogue Expedition story, the book called Venture, which will launch on May 1st, and or at least pre orders will launch on May 1st, and you can get a copy of that soon. It's a fun read because there's so much good storytelling. Sean wrote it with narratives from Allison and Gabe, and there's just so many stories and so much fun and adventures from all the different Rogue expeditions, destinations. One of the things for me that I kind of saw in it in reading it, although this isn't explicitly in the structure of the book, but the sort of the parallels between succeeding in business and succeeding in running. There's some interesting overlaps there which we'll draw out in this discussion. But I want to start with how we got here. Obviously, running a running travel business during a global pandemic is uh, a challenge that has been difficult to navigate. And it all really started just over a year ago. Allison, in the middle of your flight on the way to Morocco via Germany, and everything came to a screeching halt. So we'll start there, Allison. Just tell us how you experienced the global halt in travel that was the pandemic that suddenly shut down the business.
1: Yeah, I was kind of right in the middle of it. I mean, I can't, none of us can really say it was a huge shock at that time. Things were happening really quickly. Um, The three of us had all actually just been together in Nicaragua two weeks before, I think two weeks before. Um, Had a pretty casual goodbye, see you in Morocco in two weeks. Uh, I went home, ran the Olympic trials, and then on March 10th, boarded a flight to Morocco. Um, Things were definitely escalating quickly at that point. And we had internally, we had all had a bunch of conversations about these upcoming trips and safety protocols you know Hamid went and bought 20 bottles of hand sanitizer in Marrakesh because we couldn't get it in the US anymore um and I would I would say I was nervous about those trips but at that point it still seemed reasonable to expect that maybe this would be like an Italy and China issue it was like well there's no covid in Spain there's no covid in Morocco like we can get these trips and it'll be fine um of course it wasn't fine so yeah I flew out on March 10th 10th or 11th um and flew to Frankfurt. And when I landed, there was a text. We have a group WhatsApp thread, and Gabe had sent a link um, to an article saying that Trump was banning all flights from Europe starting the following day. And that's what I landed in Europe to. Um, we also had a group, um, a women's retreat that I had helped with logistics for happening in Morocco that week, um, not a running thing separately. And so I was sort of the liaison for that um, from afar. And I remember I landed, and I also had a bunch of texts from them asking me. What was happening with the borders if they should cancel and go home. And I was like, I just heard the news. I have no idea what's happening. Um like give me a minute. So yeah, the three of us got on a phone call um there in the airport. I think Gabe was in Colorado. Sean, you were already in Morocco and I was in Germany and kind of just realized we had to cancel the trip. Um, we had no choice really, we didn't have any information. Um, all of the articles just said flights from Europe banned tomorrow. We'll give more information later. And we had 15 people that were supposed to board a flight the next day to Morocco and you have to trans- transit through Europe to get there. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a mess. I mean, I was jet lagged and didn't really know what to do, but I think there was really no option. We couldn't let people fly there. I don't think I really wanted to go at that point and be in charge of people. And so made the decision to cancel the trip, which felt insane. Um, that was going to be trip number 80 something and we've never canceled one, never junk we would cancel one. And so I basically just wrote an email from the airport, told everybody the trip's canceled, don't get on your flight. Give me a day or two to get home so I can you know, email you about refunds and what we're going to do. We didn't even know what we were going to do at that point. It was just like, don't get on your flight. So did that, uh, went, rebooked my flight. I, I thought I would go to Marrakesh anyway. Um, figured I could go see Sean and Hamid and get some sleep and fly back a few days later. You know, And the airline attendants basically told me, like we'll put you on a flight, but we don't know if we're going to have flights after tomorrow. So we could send you to Houston an hour if you want to go home. <laughs> <I was laughs> like, well, that's what we're going to do. So yeah, I took a 37 hour field trip to Frankfurt. Um, pretty much got back on that 10 hour flight back to Houston. Um, completely panicked the whole time, just about the business and canceling trips and everything. Um, yeah, that was a, stressful few days. And terrible. In the, in the end, it worked out well because um, Morocco actually sealed their borders, I believe two days later. Um, so we were we were pretty close to being stuck there with a group of 15 clients for the better part of a month, I think was how long Americans got stuck in Morocco. So we dodged a bullet there.
0: Yeah. And then trip after trip, obviously from there got canceled. We do have trips back on the calendar though, which is exciting with fingers crossed this year. We'll talk about that in a second. But amidst this massive halt and pause Sean you had the idea to write a book about the story of Rogue Expedition so tell me about that part of your pandemic experience
3: yeah I mean I mean the first sort of couple of months I would say that first hard lockdown was kind of a novelty in a way for us I mean yes it was a shock and it was you had to get over it but on the other hand it was like oh well I guess we're not traveling anywhere for two months since you were at at home in one place and I came back Ireland and was working on the farm, and yes, we were worried about things, but you, you just felt so not in control about any, anything that you were just seeing "Let's just see how it'll play out." So, I, you know, it, it was probably a couple of months in that I raised it to Alison and I was like, "Well, this this would be the time to write the book we've always talked about. If we can't do it now, then when could you?" And I think I sort of, you know, you, you guys, you guys gave me a nod to sort of have a go at it. I think, and I just sat down one day and wrote something and once I had probably a chapter and a half ready I uh, sort of sent it over to Alison and Gabe <clears throat> as a means of sort of getting some eyes on it. And I think, I mean, it, it could have died there and then, but, you, but the two of them were very open to it going forward and open to the way that I wanted to maybe write it. Cause it was very much about the two, of, you, you know, it was about their story, I suppose, and, and very much about them. And if they weren't open to telling that then it could have stopped in its tracks, but then it became a nice, project because we got into a sort of a back and forth then where they started to pitch in stories and which way it could go and what direction and bit by bit it started to fall into place although it probably took still another few months for it to get to a tipping point where it's like okay definitely can finish this this will be a book rather than a start of something that never gets finished
0: yeah really good storytelling that's to me the the real reason to read it just really good storytelling about this whole Adventure. So, Gabe, let's take it back to the beginning of the adventure in 2012. Allison runs the Olympic trials in Houston, does really well there. And then you guys have a trip to Morocco planned as a celebration of and a break after her big intense training cycle there. And Serendipity brings you a guy named Hamid, and the rest is sort of history. I don't think I knew all the details of the story of you guys meeting him and how maybe a few small shifts in one direction or the other might have not had that first experience with him happen. So tell us the story of meeting at
2: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the whole trip to Morocco was sort of a spin the globe kind of moment. We weren't really sure where we wanted to go. We were both stuck in our jobs. Allison was obviously working uh, full-time with rogue equipment. Um, coaching and, you know, doing all the marketing for you guys. I was in construction working long hours, stressful, didn't have time to really plan anything. Um, I think we were originally looking at Portugal, decided Morocco was a little more exotic and um, ended up there. We had previously, I guess our previous big trip was living for a year abroad in Southeast Asia. So We were kind of used to just flying by the seat of our pants and showing up and getting a hotel room and kind of just going as the wind flows. Um, Morocco is a little different because we only had a couple of weeks. So we really had to plan it out. And the Sahara Desert was definitely um, high on the priority list. Uh, During the first week, I guess we were in Morocco, Uh, we had met up with another couple we had rented a car and just took off on a little road trip. Um, it was super fun. They had to fly back home. So we ended up in Orzazot. Uh, we returned the rental car and we were sort of just kind of figuring out what the next step was. And in our hotel, I was inquiring about, um, you know, if there were any tour operators and the nice lady at the desk pointed me to Hamid and, um, yeah, I went over there and started talking to them. And the typical spiel in Morocco is they're going to give you a pretty hard sell. Like if they were used car salesmen in the U S like they would be rich. Um, those guys can, yeah, they're, they're great salesmen. And you kind of start to shrug that off after you're in Morocco for a few days, you know what to expect. And, uh, Hamid was just different. Like he was very calm and relaxed and, uh, you know, just very friendly. And uh, we talked about it. Um, he had a family camp in the uh, Chicago dunes, which is kind of the, the main area we wanted to go to. And, you know, it was an expensive trip. We weren't really quite sure what we wanted to do. So we said, Hey, let's, we're going to have dinner and um, we'll give you a call. He gave me a cell phone number and Alice and I went our separate ways. Um, we sat down at dinner and decided, Hey, we're in Morocco. We're never going to be back in Morocco. Like, let's just do it. Um, so I went across the plaza and found a payphone. <laughs> and uh, this was before international cell phones existed. Um, but, um, yeah, I put in some, some deer hum and gave him a call and, you know, it was like a weird connection and got disconnected. Um, I tried again, no luck. I had no more deer hum. I was like, well, it wasn't meant to be. So I went back across the plaza, sat down. We continued our dinner. And like five minutes later, I see Hamid walking across the plaza with the response of, Did you try to call me? <laughs> <laughs> we were both just baffled on how he knew that and how he <laughs> knew where we were. Uh, we immediately had that that gut feeling that this was our guy and uh he was hired. <laughs> um but it turns out he had called the operator in Morocco. I guess you can do that and <laughs> found out where the call came from, called the store on the corner and said, yeah, a tourist, or a, a, you know, American just left the payphone and walked across and sat at that table and he came and got us. So <laughs> we left the next morning uh, for a three day trip, uh, two nights in the in the desert. And um, yeah, uh,
0: it's crazy. It do you guys think about what would happen had that connection not worked? No, it's,
2: yeah, oh, all the it's,
1: time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Where, where and would I you remember be our, our whole rationale for hiring him even, because we were such diehard, like independent travelers, and it kind of killed us to hire anybody for anything. Now we know better, but at the time, that was kind of our style. And um, I remember we actually said to each other, like, we'll never be back in Morocco. This is a once in a lifetime thing. Like, just spend a little extra money and hire this guy. Um, Little did we
0: know. Yeah, the rest is now history. And who knows where you'd be without that, without him tracking you down. I love that story. It also, I think, tells you what kind of guide he is. (laughs) He uh, is industrious, gets it done, and uh, can roll with the punches. I want to talk about your experience, Allison, at the desert camp, at his family's desert camp there, because the storytelling around that and hanging out around the fire in the evening with the music playing and food coming and wine flowing to me is sort of a central kind of experience that happens in different forms in all of your trips. And, you know, it might not be in the Sahara, it could be on the Island of Stress, but it's, it's, it, it's a big part of it, that community element afterwards because that reminiscing and enjoying the experience of the day is a big part of these adventures so talk about that first experience in the desert in Morocco
1: yeah i think um you know at the, at this point in life i think i've gotten to go spend a night in the sahara 14 or 15 different times and i feel like it's just as magical every single time i get to do it and i think a lot of it you know like you said this experience can happen in a lot of ways but you're put in this landscape that's so different it's so far removed from anywhere you've ever been um you're totally taken away from normal life from the outside world and you're just there right um but the cool thing with the sahara and that camp is you know you climb up on these dunes some of these are almost a thousand feet tall um the sunsets the light out there is absolute magic but you just since you get when you look out over the ocean you have that same feeling there um, when you look out over those dunes and i just remember i felt like a kid again like we got out there and I just remember like running up the dunes and rolling down. And I mean, I went out for hours, just like running around in the sand barefoot and so much fun. Um, so yeah, it was just a really, really special place and just absolutely loved it. And I think we both had huge grins on our face the whole time we were out there and that particular time, it was just the two of us plus Hamid and the guide. And I think there was a cook or two at the camp. So we were like the only guests staying there. And that was kind of cool. Cause I do remember like we, we had the campfire and all of that, but I we also went in and like hung out with those guys in their tents and I think they had the hookah out and kind of got to, you know, just hang out with those guys a little different. And, like they, what's really cool out there, I think is that they have just as much fun as we do. Um, most of those guys were born in the desert. They're from that area. Um, to them, like that's where they want to be. You don't feel like anyone's putting on this show for you because you're just paying tourists. Um, it's genuinely where they want to be. And I think that's a big part of the magic out there. Um, and yeah, the, the wine flowing helped with the <laughs> ideation. I think um, Gabe and I weren't really prepared that first trip. We didn't realize how difficult it was to find alcohol outside of the city. And so we'd been traveling for two weeks. I think I made Gabe walk around a lot more towns and he was happy about trying to find someplace that would sell a bottle of wine, but he just couldn't find it anywhere. Um, and then we got out to the Sahara and of course, you know those guys knew better, and I remember we had been out in the sand and came back to the camp, and he had pulled a few bottles of wine out that he brought. And yeah, I think everything was just so on point. You know, there was there was no way not to have you know, some kind of deep moment and great ideas out there.
0: And that's where the idea of the running trip to Morocco was born. So you you it come was. back home, you come back home, you pitch the idea to Ruth here at Rogue, and suddenly you have a trip to plan.
1: Yeah. You know, on that whole trip, I didn't run at all those two weeks. Part of it, I was post trials, but also I didn't know if that was, if it was safe, if I could, what I could wear. Could I wear shorts? Is that super weird? So I just didn't run. I uh, mean, we hiked a little bit, but you know, the topic of running kind of came up around the fire with Hamid that night. And, you know, I had noticed all week that the whole country is just full of there. There's trails, there's mule trails, there's dirt roads, there's hardly any traffic. It's absolutely gorgeous. You have so many different landscapes and it just seemed like there would be so much opportunity for running. and we it had kind of come up in conversation. And you know Hamid said that one line that changed everything, which was that one time he had some French tourists that wanted to go running, so he drove his car and gave him water. And you know, I was working at Rogue. I had access to lots of runners that liked for us to give them water and make routes. And you know, it was just kind of like it was it wasn't a business idea. It was a one-off like, going get ten people I coached come back here, and we could do this running thing. And again, bottle of wine or two deep around a campfire kind of like a brilliant idea and we kept insisting to that we were going to come back with runners and you know he just responded ah inshallah inshallah you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't believe us but we i think we actually took his business card home i think that was how things worked back then and uh yeah emailed him when we got home and said give us an itinerary for a running trip and the rest is history pretty much
0: yeah a year later 22 runners, a lot of rogue legends on that first trip Ruth and Chuck and Nidra and Devin. I think back to the storytelling from that first group, it's pretty cool. Gabe, what you're not a runner, I mean, you run, but you're not really a runner. Your main thing is kayaking, mountain biking, things that involve much more risk and sometimes pain and broken bones. What, what was your reaction to this idea? I don't think I've ever really talked to you about it in, in terms of the running element and being a part of that. And, you know, it not necessarily being your thing, but definitely Allison's thing. What was your reaction?
2: You know, I mean, it's a great idea. I think Allison and I are both drawn to the adventure uh, for me. Running is a means of exploration. It's the same same reason why I mountain bike, why I kayak, um, go on rafting trips. Like I want to go see places that I can't normally see on my own. And running is faster than hiking. You can get to see a lot more. Um, it's great exercise. I think I realized the value of running post college when you know I had less time and um, yeah to to get out and, and get a crew together to go on a kayaking trip or go on a mountain bike um ride Uh, running was just easy traveling you could bring a pair of shoes and that was your adventure component so i think morocco fit the bill perfect for that um clearly being in a relationship with an elite distance runner uh (laughs) you you start running and
0: (laughs) (laughs) or else you don't get to spend
2: a lot of time together Um, Uh, i I think (laughs) i think being at that time allison was not a trail runner at all. And um, yeah, that was, I think that was an equal uh, playing field for us because if it was like rugged, rough terrain, like I, she could, yeah, we could stay with each other and she wasn't going uh, too fast and I wasn't going too slow. So it worked out great.
0: And I think both of you are good at rolling with the punches. Speaking of rolling with the punches, we got to figure out how Sean fits into the story. You came a little bit later, Sean, in the Morocco story when the at the advent of Endurance Adventure Morocco, which was, I don't know if you describe it as more advanced, but maybe a little more rigorous trip than than some of the others with a little bit more mileage and some fun challenges along the way. But you weren't really supposed to be there, Sean, from what I understand. And suddenly Josue, which was one of the partners in establishing that trip, said, Hey, this guy, Sean's showing up. You should meet him. He's going to be fine. He's going to help you run this trip. And, and there you are. So talk about you entering the picture.
3: Yeah. Well, the, the endurance adventure concept was a, was a joint venture. It came up between uh, Rogue Expeditions and another company Fuego Agua, which produces ultra marathons and this event survival run mostly in Nicaragua and so I knew Josue very well and we had been through all kinds of trials and tribulations putting on ultra marathon events um, and so I, he trusted me so he was ready to th- kind of th- throw me in last minute to this new trip but you know I had never met uh, Alison and Gabe we, we may have been on an email thread or something but that was probably the extent of it So sway yeah, had to pull out, but he sort of didn't think a lot of it. He was like, I'll send Sean, that'll be fine. I also didn't think a lot of it at the time. I was like, you know, just one more thing. And I was at a point in life where I was just doing a lot of travel, a lot of different events. Um, I was all over the place. And so it was just one more thing added to the calendar. And I thought I'd just get there and figure it out on ground. Um, So it was probably, I was a little bit undercooked, I would say going in. Alison and Gabe obviously had the connections. They had Hamid. Morocco by that point. I mean, this was three, four years into going to Morocco. So it was tried and tested and and we had the contacts on ground, but I didn't really know any of that. But, you know, I got there. We met in Marrakesh first time and, and we, we we clicked, you know, and that, that first trip went off in, in hindsight, knowing what we know now and knowing the nuances of trip planning nowadays, it's pretty amazing how well that trip went. <laughs> but because uh, we did, you know, a lot longer runs into a lot more remote places. There was no phone coverage a lot of the time. Um, yeah, we were kind of doing challenges on the fly. We had people carrying firewood around and making adobe bricks and, all kinds of stuff we climbed to Cal the highest you know the highest point in Morocco up to like 13,000 feet with crampons on hoka shoes uh, maybe that first year was actually dry enough to go up in, in trail running shoes but there was a lot of stuff crammed into one week and um, but we pulled it off and i think the sense coming out of that week was that we jived well and, you know myself with with Gabe and allison and we probably didn't really dwell on it too much because we hadn't any plans to do anything after that for another year at least but you know we were on solid foundation i think for for whatever would come afterwards and we we clicked from a personalities point of view
0: i think it's pretty telling that you would basically look a 60 to 70 mile running trip in the face and just sort of shrug it off and be like sure let's go i'm in <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was just
3: I mean roll with the punches is, kind of, <laughs> is, is, is the phrase with that you know it was literally just get there and I mean the, I, 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 t- I tell the story in the book about that the high atlas trail which was like a 30 mile section it took us two days to cover was marked with 300 flags by Alison and Gabe a week <laughs> prior and like there was barely a flag and I was kind of scurrying <laughs> around through little villages with kind of a phone trying to pan in and out and figure out which way was which <laughs> and more chalk arrows to get people through but you just you just get on with it you you just just adapt and you 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 just get through the day and you know we, we got all the runners through they had a great time and it definitely was an adventure because we were pushing the, you know the bounds of what we could organize but that's the whole point you know that was the whole point of that trip to sort of just keep it on the edge of uh, of being an organized trip but um, <laughs> it went off without a hitch
0: yeah, speaking of rolling with the punches, we got to talk about the story you tell to open the book, which from at least my outside-in perspective was sort of the first big, oh, shit moment of Rogue Expeditions. Maybe there were others, but the biggest perhaps early on was the ice, getting stuck in the ice in in Patagonia. So Gabe, tell us that story about getting stuck in the ice in Patagonia.
2: That whole day was an oh, shit moment. Um <laughs> But it all started with the ice we were uh, we had chartered a uh, a scientific research boat Uh, they did some photo safaris and stuff Uh, so it was a two day two days on the boat uh, leaving from puto arenas we had picked up the clients and immediately went to the boat which in hindsight is a terrible idea just because of flight delays lost luggage things like that Um, we would never set those logistics up the uh that way now so we're on the boat um and we're down in the uh in the fjords we're looking at glaciers calving uh elephant seals um, leopard seals like all kinds of just cool animals whales and we disembark on the 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 larger boat the forest boat to get on the smaller zodiacs to they can they're a little bit more maneuverable and you can get up into the uh you know kind of the ice that's calved off we between that and there was a big rock outcropping, like a big smooth granite rock outcropping, that we could all safely land on and um you know take some of the whiskey uh and <laughs> pour it over some glacier ice and and toast um as we're going up through the ice on the zodiacs we heard a loud crack, crack uh, sounded like a cannon going off and we couldn't see what was happening but we, we definitely heard it and you know a few seconds later we started to see uh the ripples of kind of the wave um from the ice fall and um we didn't really think a whole lot of it and you know it that it kind of that ripple effect kind of pushed Uh, the ice up and over that big granite dome that a few of us had already landed on. Um, So it was kind of a mad scramble to get everyone safely off those rocks. We couldn't land any more people and the Zodiacs couldn't pull up to it because it was literally washing huge chunks of ice up and over it. Um, So we kind of had to time it with the waves and get one person off at a time. Um, once we were safely back in the Zodiacs, we quickly realized that that whole little bay had filled in with ice and we couldn't go anywhere. It's just like, like when you put ice cubes in a, in a, in a glass with cold water, they all just freeze and lock together. And the, uh, yeah, the icebergs did the same thing. And, um, we were, you know, hitting the ice with, with, the the wooden oars, um, And yeah, we we weren't making any progress. They were trying to ram up uh, on top of the ice with the boats to break it. That wasn't working. And uh, we were just not really going anywhere. Um, So they called in for reinforcements. The big boat, the forest boat, uh, before it became a a, a boat down in Patagonia, it was an icebreaker. And so it had a big, thick hole on it. It could push through and break the ice up. Allison and I were on the same boat with the only uh, person from the crew that spoke English. <laughs> the other group was on the other Zodiac and they had no idea what was going on. So they might have been a little bit more panicked. Um, but um, yeah, the big, the big boat came and you knew it was a special day when you saw the entire crew and the captain out there with, with video recorders and cell phones taking pictures. Um, so it was a sight for them as well. They had never seen anything like that. And they also asked us not to put that in the review.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't tell anyone, but you made it out safely with no, (laughs) no injuries, no issues. But I think it's funny thinking about you trying to holler over the wind to the other boat about what was going on.
1: Yeah. And I know that year I had, it was sunny out, but I suggested that everyone wear their rain gear just in case, because the weather changes really quick down there and several People in that group ignored me and wore shorts and T-shirts. Anyway, from that moment on, we mandated rain gear. Required
0: rain gear. (laughs) The other thing about Patagonia that I remember again from my side is is navigating. Speaking of rolling with the punches, navigating currency exchange. (laughs) Suddenly, trying to figure out how do we, first of all, just get money down there safely and make sure that it goes to the right place so you can pay the guides and hotels and things like that. But then also just trying to price the trip so that you could mitigate currency risk as well. It became a big challenge. I know Gabe, you're the spreadsheet guy, but that was to <laughs> me a complicated jigsaw puzzle of things to figure out too.
2: Yeah, it was actually really fun. Um, I enjoyed hedging currency and, <laughs> and, you know, in my previous life of construction um, you know, I was financial planning for, Eighty million dollar construction jobs. So, a running trip to Patagonia was was, yeah, it was it was in the wheelhouse for sure, and I enjoyed it. Uh, I remember our first trip to Morocco. Hamid didn't have a bank account yet, and I think Allison and I went down there with like twenty five thousand dollars in cash. We didn't sleep very well on the on the plane that night. We, I think yeah. me
1: and Ruth each carried ten thousand dollars in cash on us. Yeah.
2: Yeah. and um we've had some similar experiences in patagonia um we had you know there was some difficulties with wire transfers and money not showing up um so rather than continue to go through that headache we just brought the remaining balance with us down to patagonia and when you convert that into chilean pesos you end up walking out of the currency exchange place in uh, downtown Punta Arenas with a grocery bag, brown paper bag, like full of cash. Like it's the largest grocery bag of money I've <laughs> ever seen in my life. And I'm like, we're going to get mugged between here and our hotel. Like, <laughs> it all worked out fine. But...
0: It all, Thankfully, I'm glad you thought it was fun. I know from my vantage point of like looking at bank accounts, it was nerve wracking, But uh, but you had it all under control and it did work out. We've also, I want to talk, go talk about running for a second, Allison. Obviously every trip has a running as a central component. Kenya though is special in a sense that you get to go to E10, which is the training ground of all the great Kenyan marathoners, particularly what's that, what's that place like?
1: Oh man, e is awesome. Um, so Eten technically is really just a little village up in the mountains, um, in Kenya and if you were to go there and if you removed all the runners there's not much going on there's a couple little shops there's a lot of chickens there's a lot of cows um dirt roads I think there's one paved road through the center of town um, it's a quiet quiet place um but your high altitude you're at about 8400 feet there um, so as far as Kenya goes it's it still looks tropical in a way it's still lush but it is quite cold it's actually foggy a lot of the time it can be pretty chilly there um, really, really good climate for training. Um, but what you get is just thousands and thousands of runners who are there. There are, sport, there are foreigners. Um, there are very few tourists. I would say our groups are probably one of the only kind of people that come in, you know, as a tourist, so to speak. Um, there are foreigners that go there to train, but it's mostly thousands and thousands of Kenyan runners who are trying to make it in running. And, you know, most of them are coming from you know, surrounding villages, villages in Kenya, and running a scene is a very viable career option and a way out. And if you can get noticed, if you can get into a race, if you can get noticed enough to get into a race overseas that has prize money, um, that can be life-changing for a lot of those people. So it's worth it for a lot of them to pretty much give up everything, go there, um, and just train. So it's it's a very different kind of mentality than what we see, you know, running in the U.S. where people are running for fitness or for you know, social interaction, whatever reason it may be, um, it is strictly, it is very much a career path there. Um, but it's, it's also very different in that running. I think a lot of us tend to think of it as sort of a solo thing or, you know, kind of focused on ourselves. It's very much a group, um, activity. And when you're in E10, you get there. A lot of people are training, you know, everyone's kind of got their own coaches or in training plans. There are small groups, but generally speaking, there's pretty standing kind of meetups where people Meet up and run. So I would say, I think when we've been there, there tends to be probably a 6 a.m., a 10 a.m., and a 4 p.m. kind of time of day where there's critical mass. And you go out there and there are just thousands and thousands of people running on these dirt roads. And you just have these rolling hills, dirt roads, trees. It's um, absolutely beautiful, no traffic, nothing to worry about. And just some of the fastest people you've ever seen in your life. And they could be running in groups of 100, people, um, just hauling ass up a hill, you know, and it's just kind of, A lot of the Kenyan style of training, um, which I actually really like and I've encountered there, and also, you know, meeting Kenyans throughout my own racing and whatnot. Um, but a lot of the kind of runs really start very, very easy. I mean, almost walking pace sometimes, like very, very easy and it just gets faster, faster, faster. And it eventually will hit a point where it's just kind of hang on as long as you can, you know, and there's people that'll hang on, there's people that'll drop. Um, but yeah, everyone's kind of got this, we're all in it together mentality and people will you know even when we're there running we'll have those groups come by and they'll yell at us and tell us to come join and hang on and why why are you walking or why are you okay? Like come run with us. And um yeah it's just it's magic. I've never been anywhere like it at all. Um I absolutely see why it is a training has become kind of a training Mecca um because there's not anything else to do there. There's to this day there's still really no good Wi-Fi in town. There's really no diversions. Um, there's kind of one little beer bar at that overlook gave I can't remember what that's called but There's kind of that. And yeah, a couple little shops, cafes, but otherwise people are there to train. Um, that's all that's going on there, eat, sleep, and run.
0: And they're doing it together. You know, I think we know in the road community that running is only a solo sport. If you let it be, if you find the community to do it with, there's plenty of people that you can surround yourself with. And I think that's obviously true there. It's also something to me that's cool on the trips, which is that running becomes that common bond that really quickly codifies the group culture on each trip. Sean, I know you've gotten the opportunity to experience that many times. Describe that, how running just so quickly brings people together from literally all over the world sometimes on these trips.
3: Yeah. I mean, you'll start off with 12 or 14 or 16, you know, jet lagged strangers, uh, you know, in a, in a hotel lobby and everybody's, shuffling around but it, it only takes a couple of conversations to to break the ice and and, and the beauty of our trips is you've got, at least got that common you've got one thing in common which is that you're all here to run you know even if you've got nothing else in common or if you've, you've inevitably got a mix of backgrounds and personalities and, and all the rest but you've got running as a starting point and so you, you start off with a group of very it's running focused conversation I'd say at the beginning, and, a lot of the time you know it it was in some ways an inspiration for the book but allison and gable offer their stories from previous trips and a lot of people want to hear about how they got started and they're running why do how much do we run stuff like that bit by bit the people on the trip start to give more and more of their stories but by the end of a trip like when you've spent a week or 10 days in kenya or in patagonia or somewhere you've got your group stories then they become you know they've shared in things together the good and the bad there'll be running injuries, and there'll be accidents and mishaps along the way but you develop this little group bond which is cool to be a part of because each group is unique and takes on its own dynamic and has its own story to it but it's really cool to see a group of people come together that might only have running in common by the end they have a lot in common and many of the people from the groups stay in touch many of them come back together on future trips or they go and run marathons together somewhere they meet up for training so there's a whole network in, in, in the book, I kind of come to describe them as the alumni, these people that kind of come through the trips and then they they stick together and there's this cool network of people through the world now, not just through Austin and not just through the US, but almost this little global fraternity of rogue expedition people, which is surely the neatest thing that the company <laughs> has achieved. And I'm sure it wasn't in the wildest imaginations of, uh, of Alison and Gabe at the beginning, but that's just how it's all played out.
0: That's cool. And it draws people in too. I mean, not just the groups, but themselves, but the way it draws in others, you know, Gabe, I think about all the partners that you guys have established, Kanuthia and Baruch and Tony, it's like, you didn't necessarily seek these people out, even Katie and Kate, the other guys. I mean, it just kind of came together. I mean, it's how do you describe the serendipity of meeting the people that have become the glue that holds it all together?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it, (laughs) I don't even know how to describe it. It just, it just happened. Um, And it's usually the people on our trips are good people. And most of the introductions have happened from people on our trips. Um, You know, Canuthia was a recommendation uh, from Amanda on our very first trip. Um, Borut, I think was a different, a unique story because he kind of came to us but came to us through the Austin community, and um, Katie Conlin uh, is another recommendation, or I guess, through uh, Dacia at a running store in Seattle, um, and came to us that way. So um, you know it, it call it chance, call it luck i don't I don't know, but. Um, I guess good people attract good people and um yeah, it's it's inspiring to be around everyone. Everyone has a really unique story. Um yeah, it's 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 been a blast to get to know everyone. I feel like we have family all over the world.
0: Yeah, you gotta have those good people in business and in running. Going back to you, Sean, another theme that I pulled out of this is is a will you have to have a willingness for adventure, whether you're in the business. Whether you're taking a trip, and certainly when you're scouting, they don't have grizzly bears in Ireland, from what I understand. So, when you were scouting that British Columbia trip, how afraid were you of grizzlies?
3: I was, uh, I was a little puckered up on my first <laughs> run or two. Um, yeah, I mean it's something else. If you've never encountered a grizzly bear on two feet, you know, not separated from within a vehicle or anything. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a unique feeling. And the scouting trip took place right in the middle of the Salmon Run. So there are hundreds and hundreds of grizzly bears in, in the Bellacoola Valley. And um, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of great wilderness in, in BC, but Bellacoola is right, right in the middle of it. And uh, Frasier, who's our contact there, he's he's a keen trail runner and everything else. And I sort of imagined prior to the scouting trip that he'd be coming along with me at least for one or two runs, show me the ropes, show me how to use a bear spray, but he was just too busy. <laughs> and so he just sort of turfed me out and I, I went off running. I definitely was very conscious. I definitely was shouting hey bear a lot. I did things that I've never done before running, which like I played music out of my phone, like an obnoxious idiot, but I just had to do that, just to make noise. You know, I was on my own and never saw a person all day, so I was like, at least I'll alert these grizzly bears to the person going through the forest. But bit by bit, you you do get comfortable with it. You know, there's there's a there's a skill set to to running safely there. I think you do have to get some knowledge under your belt about where to run and when to run and and how to run to to do it safely in in those scenarios. Um, but it was definitely exhilarating the first couple of times.
0: It's pretty safe when the salmon are running, and they have much better things to feast on, I suppose.
3: Exactly, you've got a river full of easy dinner, or a, <laughs> a really scared Irish dude running pretty fast the other direction. It's like go for the salmon.
0: <laughs> I love the quote about uh, distinguishing between grizzly bear and black bear. Shit.
3: Yep. Yeah. You got uh, you got your bear bells and the Grizzly Bear shit. And <laughs> I kid you not, every single person in the Belkula Valley, like when they see a new person come in, they're just like, "Okay, let's get the bear joke out." And because I was going into the stores, I mean, there's the, there's like one hardware store in town, and there's the, the 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 Legion, which sort of passes for the the bar up there. And I had my running pack and I my bell and the running pack all the time, so they would hear me jingling in, and they'd be like, "Oh, look look at this guy coming." let's get the bear joke teed up. (laughs) Uh, I heard that one a few times, but, um, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great place. And the fact that they all are so comfortable living with grizzly bears constantly, you know, just going through their backyards, um, is is a unique thing and, and that's what make bc you know just a fascinating place to visit because yeah in ireland as you as you point out there's no grizzly bears there's <laughs> not really anything too wild so um it definitely it hones your senses and gets your your adventure adventurous uh, spirit stoked i would say when you know <laughs> that there's those animals around you in the forest we we had one allison and i were doing a scout and run i think just before the group arrived probably remember this Alison. we were coming down from Turner Lake I think I was leading and I saw a a black bear cub just shoot up a tree and then that kind of informed us thankfully we were starting to learn at that point that that informed us the mother was nearby and we backed off and it all passed off easily but I would imagine the heart rates went up a little bit there but it was
1: I I remember it vividly because I remember being so happy that you were in front and then i was questioning my ability to be a running guide because i did not want to be in charge at all <laughs> i think we both had our bear spray out <laughs> Just like what do we do now
3: we we were wondering with that trip whether people would be okay running you know we were kind of recommending that they run in pairs or in groups and it was people were very very comfortable running in pairs and in groups
0: <laughs> they, they, they did not say. they didn't need to be told twice <laughs> oh man that's terrifying but if you want to get off the beaten path and maybe see a grizzly run bc it's for you allison i want to ask you a question which is in this journey which now goes back to 2013 with that first trip what's what's the moment where you've been most afraid or worried or scared so
1: afraid. um Oh man, I have to think on this one for a minute.
0: And it, and it, it doesn't have to be a, in a place. It could be business-wise too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like those early years, I was a constant state of afraid internally, just in terms of like filling trips, getting people to sign up. Um, there's Sean actually described it really accurately in the book, which is funny because we had never met at that point. But it sounds like he was sitting in the RV with Gabe and I as we would, you know, see a cancellation email come through and. I mean, I'd be lying if I said those still don't stress me out, but back then that was, that could make or break everything. Um, you know, we we're dealing with so few clients every year. And I feel like it was certain trips with a new trip would sell really easily. And then after that, I feel like constantly, and marketing was kind of what I handled. And I feel like just 24 seven, I didn't think about anything except how are we going to get people to fill the spots on this trip? Um, and it, there was just never a break because there was always a trip that needed spots filled. Um, and they always ended up working out, um, but I never really learned to trust that. It was, yeah, I feel like it was a constant just underlying stressor and worry, and I could never really relax or turn it off or take a break because it was always just thinking about that next trip and getting people in. Um, so, I don't know if that answers the question. I would say from a business perspective, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was always there. and and it was never a matter of like, you know, even early on, I don't know that we were, I don't know the moment when we, fully like mentally fully committed to it. I know the moment when like, you know, Gabe left his job and we decided this is what we were going to do. But I feel like a, a lot of those early years, you know, I was still working for Rogue. It was very easy to have one foot out and kind of like, okay, if it doesn't work out, it's fine. We'll do something else. But eventually it hit a point where like this thing matters and it's like our child, right? And we want it, we want it to succeed and we want it to do well. And, um, you know, I do think around 2017, 2018, we definitely hit a turning point of really just people finding us and things kind of flowing. And that was one of the most rewarding things ever, but a lot of those early years, um, yeah. Constant state of what are we doing and why are we doing this? <laughs> and is it going to work? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I remember, remember
0: that. I remember getting the updates. We need this many people to make mm-hmm. the trip. <laughs> Otherwise we'll have to cancel. We need this many people to, to make money on it and so forth. I mean, stressful times, especially when it's your job, theoretically, to fill them. Right. Gabe, were you quitting your job, your full-time, pretty high-paying construction management position? Was that your scariest moment?
2: I think it was pretty exciting. Um, you know, like any new adventure, you're, you're really excited going into it. It's maybe, you know, once you start going down that path and you're, you're, you've got both feet fully invested into that, that new adventure is where you kind of start to think, what have I done? <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was definitely scary. I mean, that was the, the only thing I knew, um, how to make money at. And, um, it was a great career, um, 401k, all the great benefits, you know, easy, comfortable, um, Yeah, everything was planned out to to kind of give that all up, not realizing that it would be, you know, two or three years before we actually made a livable wage. Um, Looking back and, you know, had we known what we know now, would we would I have made that same decision? I don't know. Um, Is it worth it now? Absolutely. Like I could I cannot imagine doing anything differently. but it's definitely scary you have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows all within a 10 minute window of a given work day of a of a small business owner and um i just remember yeah looking at bank accounts and just trying to do the balance of you know new trip sign ups to cancellations and deposits paid and and all that um it was definitely it was definitely stressful um like allison said you know you get two cancellations on a trip with 10 people. And that can totally break your whole profit margin. Um, but yeah, that's, that's definitely scary. And I wanna go back and say, I think the scariest moment I've seen um, on one of our trips was scouting with Allison in South Africa. Oh, yeah. And she saw a cobra and I've <laughs> never seen her. <laughs> <laughs> a, a cobra hooded and poised, ready to strike. And it, yeah, she just kept repeating over and over again, Cobra, 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 Cobra. And he kept and I was walking like, where, towards where, it. Where? What? And I walked right past it. Oh
0: no my idea. gosh. <laughs> Goodness. And I think know. that
1: one was scarier after it was over. Like in the moment it happened so fast. And then later in the day thinking about had one of us actually gotten dipped by that Cobra. It's like would have
2: drastically changed the (laughs) week. That's when Allison's pace slowed down and I became the lead runner.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She, She implemented the bear strategy. Let somebody else go first. So, Sean, you had your own leap of faith too, jumping from a really solid career organizing Spartan races in Europe to taking a leap of faith on this little company called rogue expeditions what was that like for you
3: um i mean i i had been taking leaps of faith for a while so uh i was definitely open to it and i sort of have a i've always sort of trusted my gut whatever feels like the right thing to do in terms of a just from an energy perspective you just know if something's leading the right way or not and i mean i I had studied engineering in college and sort of almost did a corporate life i did like two two years working in london and then went traveling in south america for two years and i remember always thinking that was the right decision and it sort of it taught me a skill set which is always just to, to trust your gut and go the right way that you think you're going to learn new things and work with the right people so um it was actually probably an easy enough decision to you know to to come over to rogue i think we talked about it for a while it was it was a possibility. I was pretty wrapped up in Spartan. It, it was a crazy company to work for with, with you know, just in seeing travel and, and, and you know, 24 seven nature to it. So it just took a while to, yeah, to get out of that. But there was no doubt that it would be a good decision. It was just like, when would I finally hit the switch? But it was a, a very definite moment. I remember I, I said to Allison on a trip, I was like, that's it, I'm definitely doing it and uh when i got back i think it still took three or four months to finally un- disengage and unentangle from, from from the spartan octopus but um it was no it was a it was a good decision and, and a sort of an easy decision in terms of it it just seemed to be the right way to go and i, and I never looked back um since um and yeah i mean it's a unique Thing to kind of go into because it's very much Alison and Gabe started it and you know they they knew the ins and out of it but to let a third person into it was probably a big step for them but they were just from the beginning just the you know the way they handled that and and brought me into into the fold was it just worked fr- from the off so and then you had to touch back on one of Alison's stories about how they were living and dying and cancellations I mean one of the most fun parts of writing the book is that I've now got to get all of the background you know I didn't know all of the ins and outs of their life before I got involved in the company but writing the book was a a fun journey down memory lane for me because sort of the the process was that I would send them an email with three or four bullet points please talk about you know the old days when you were living in the RV or whatever some of the recordings from those that they sent me are are priceless and really should be probably aired to the public. I mean, I, I got a good...
0: <laughs> there you out. go. Outtakes. Yes. Yeah, it takes I, I want some... I want some exclusive audio for the podcast.
3: I could definitely facilitate that because there's very differing memories on the finer points of life in the RV and exactly who, you know, got the directions wrong or, you know, who did what. uh, Yeah, they were sort of falling out in real time on a voice audio and then sending it over to me to
2: kind of get it into shape to go into a book. So that was, uh, yeah, that was the fun part of the process, I would say. <laughs> Chris, yeah. the outcome was always Allison's memory was correct and mine was wrong. <laughs> that didn't seem to be the way. A lot I,
0: of time. Uh, I know how that goes. But yes. Can I follow
1: up with photo proof.
0: <laughs> there you go. Allison's got the evidence. That's what matters. That's awesome. Yes, we've we've skipped over and won't go into, but you'll have to read the book for the uh, period of them building the business, living out of an RV, traveling the country. I want to talk about the vibes of these trips just really quickly. We kind of touched on it earlier with the Sahara story and the campfires. And to me, one of the things is that just eat, oozed throughout the book was just the positive and happy vibes that these that these trips bring because you've got running at the center but but ultimately you you layer in all these other elements of great food wine cultural experiences getting to meet the local people and so forth and so i want to tell my own story and allison you can jump in on this with me which is my trip to slovenia croatia one of my favorite moments on that trip was when we arrived at our location in Croatia, which sort of this farmhouse that this older Austrian couple owns, and they were our hosts. and so allison and and um Katie, who were guides of that trip, they kept telling us as we took the ferry over to this island, that we would get a snack when we arrived. And she and we we had lunch on the boat, and we weren't supposed to eat that much but we were hungry because we'd been driving and transitioning from Slovenia to this, to this Island. And, and so of course, everybody's thinking I'm hungry. We're running a lot, you know, let's just eat. And so a lot of people end up buying extra snacks on the boat and so forth. We ate probably too much. We show up to this farmhouse to get our snack and we're greeted with Aperol spritzers to, to start. And and then what ended up being a five or six course meal, complete with dessert, starting with dipping, like hummus and other things. And then there was, there was like polenta and salad and veal and some sort of dessert afterwards. I mean, it was just, it was like a full on meal. And, you know, in the middle of the afternoon between our lunch and our dinner, which was also amazing, but hanging out on their patio in the amazing weather there on the island, getting their stories and homemade, by the way, homemade home cooked meals that they had basically prepped from stuff they bought at the market that morning. And it was just a really cool experience. I think that was one of my favorite meals on that trip. But Which those, <laughs> <laughs> but those kind of experiences, sort of the, the nature of all of those trips of these unique experiences in, in each of the places that you go.
1: Yeah, I think that farmhouse, you know, that's a perfect example of the kind of properties and places we try to incorporate into every trip. And it's going to have its own flavor in each destination, obviously. Um, But we really, really put emphasis on trying to go stay with little locally owned um, B&Bs, family-run guest houses, things like that. We want people to actually interact with people who actually live there. Um, You know, you're going to be treated really well, you're going to eat really well, and all this kind of stuff. But You know, we have no interest in going to like a big chain hotel and kind of. You can get that stuff at home. That's fine. We want some character. Um, The farmhouse style, I think, is the best. We have some version of that on almost every trip. Um, And yeah, you just you really get a bunch of people. You know, they're connecting over running, but you're getting people out of their normal lives. Um, You're getting them totally into a new place. And while things are, you know, we're taking care of details, so you don't have to waste your time figuring that out. Like, how can I go get a meal with a local family? Like, we're setting that up for you. So you don't have to waste time trying to figure it out. Um, but we're also getting people out of their comfort zone in a lot of ways. For some people, that's the travel itself. For other people, that's no big deal. But maybe they're you know, running more than they would run at home. I would say almost everybody runs significantly more on a trip than they run at home. Um, you know, or some aspect of the adventure, like there's trips, we do rafting, we do other things other than running. And so everybody in some way is out of their comfort zone for other people. It's just traveling with strangers. Like that's terrifying for some people. It'd be terrifying for me. I know now that I love it, but um, for a lot of people, that's scary. And I think when you do that, that really, really helps people bond and it really just solidifies that experience um, in their memories because they get taken a little bit out of their comfort zone and then they overcome it. And then it just becomes this thing that they're never, ever going to forget. And I think that's really where a lot of the magic comes from on every trip.
0: Truly. And now that we have everybody eager to go book a trip, Allison, tell us what the current status is of trips.
1: (laughs) Oh, I I don't know. That's, that's pretty much the current status. (laughs) You know, we opened up the second half of 2021, um, with full refund guarantees because obviously we have to plan things. Um, but we were not able to know what the border situations were going to be. So we're opening them. Um, we've, mostly filled up most of what we have um, you know the summer is looking less and less likely um every day although there was a really good announcement out of the eu a few days ago um, they claim that they'll be letting in vaccinated americans this summer um no no word yet on dates or exactly what the rules for each country will be so um, it's positive news but i wouldn't say we're super excited yet until it happens um so we'll see you know british columbia would be our first trip um, at the moment in July, um, we're definitely getting down to the wire with that one. Um, people are definitely willing to hang on as long as possible. If there's any chance they're going to start letting tourists in. Um, but it's not really moving as fast as we would like, you know, we have Ireland after that. We've got our Oregon trips this summer, which will definitely happen. Those sold out quickly, um, which is great. And then we feel pretty, I still feel pretty good about the fall. Um, we feel really good about Morocco this fall. Um, technically borders are open already. And if the EU is going to make it easier to transit through, then we should be good to go there. Um, and we're pretty much sold out on those trips, which is great. Um, and then I think Kenya will be good to go and South Africa, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, but, um, I think news is fairly good out of South Africa (laughs) right now. And then we're going to go big in 2022.
0: (laughs) There you go. Fingers crossed.
1: Yeah. I wish I had more definitive answers, but you know, we're completely at the mercy of borders right now. Um, it's not something we can control or predict and we're not interested, you know, last year we technically could have done our U S trips. Um, but we were not interested in a trip where people, you know, have to social distance and wear masks and not interact. That totally kills the magic. And we know that, you know, it's a big investment of time and money to do these trips and we want people to get the full experience. So, uh, we want to make sure they're going to get the whole experience and we're also not interested in taking a group somewhere where there's borders are still opening and closing on a whim. Um, we don't want to put people in that situation. So I think every day we're getting closer to a more stabilized situation. I've been saying that for a while, but I feel like we really are now.
0: <laughs> yes. Again, fingers crossed. Okay. I've got a final question for all of you and I'll give you a minute to think about it. Cause I'm gonna ask Sean how they can get the book, but final question would be, the biggest lesson you would take from your experience in the Rogue Expeditions journey that you would want to share with somebody else, whether that be in life, in business, in running, whatever it may be. So think about that answer while Sean tells us where people can get the book.
3: Uh, we are, maybe Allison should tell us where we can <laughs> get the book. is okay. my designated agent for all these. <laughs>
0: yeah, nice. <laughs> Even better, Allison. So publisher. we're...
1: Um, yes. Yeah, so starting May first, and I believe this is airing after that date. Um, just go to our website, RogueExpeditions.com/backslash/venture, and you can buy it right there. So we're going to take pre-orders for two weeks. That's for the print book and the ebook, and we will ship out print books and email the ebooks on June first. And then after that, things will be more widely available in mid-June. Um, but go ahead and get on that pre-order. We would love it. Um, but yeah, just head to our website, and RogueExpeditions.com. As I've said before on this
0: podcast, has one E. <laughs> one E in the middle. <laughs> they share an E, Rogue and Expeditions yep. share an E in the URL. I will also include that in the show notes. Okay, so going to you, Sean, then, about the question. So what's your biggest lesson from your journey with Rogue Expeditions?
3: Um, if I could sum it up, I would say just be curious. You know, I think our trips are obviously about running, they're about travel and everything else, but I think they're mostly about just being curious about the world. And we try to facilitate good experiences for people that might open them up to all kinds of different thinking and lessons. And it's not us giving them the lessons, it's the, it's the world. We just kind of bring them places and, and book them accommodation and find them good runs and people have good experiences, but that begins with being curious enough to give it a go. And uh, maybe people have been finding that out in a different way in the last year. We haven't been able to cross borders, but we've been maybe doing it in your neighborhood a little bit more or just changing your routine up or whatever else. So that's probably my biggest takeaway.
0: Or on Zoom in some cases. Or on Zoom. <laughs> Gabe, what about you?
2: Um, for me, I think it's kind of the, the travel motto, which is slow down, observe, and respect. Um, I think if you just kind of take a step back in life and um, just look at, you know, other cultures and, and listen instead of talking and, and you'll learn a lot from other people, how they do things, doing things differently isn't necessarily bad. It can be better. Um, but, yeah, I think that's how we all grow um, within ourselves is to, to slow down and listen to other people um, do less better.
0: Yeah. And related to that, put your device down and experience Mm -hmm. the things around you, which I think is one of the cool things about trips as well. Allison, you get the last word.
1: Um, I think mine probably more from a business perspective, um, and life perspective is go do the thing you want to do. Um, none of us know how much time we have here and, you know, I think there's nothing but regret if you don't try the things you want to do. Um, translate into running. If you just keep moving forward and you want it bad enough, you're going to figure out ways to make it happen. You're going to find the right people. Um, and things are going to work out. It may not always be the way you mapped it out, but it's going to succeed. And you know, you've got, like I said, one shot here and you should really spend your time doing something you really, really love and care about. Um, it can really pay off huge.
0: I love it. Go do the thing. And on that list, I would put, go take a trip because they are epic. Running and unforgettable running adventures. Awesome guys. Thanks so much. Allison, Gabe, and Sean for joining and for putting this book out. It's a really, really fun read, and I'm excited for our listeners to check it out. Thanks, guys.
2: Thanks for having, Thanks for us, having Chris. us.
0: There you go. Allison, Gabe, and Sean talking about rogue expeditions. Again, you can get the book by going to roguexpeditions.com forward slash venture. We'll put that in the show notes. You can also, of course, go to RogueExpeditions.com. That's with one E in the middle. And learn about all of the great destinations across the world and see what might be available for the fall. Again, fingers crossed that we'll get, be able to get trips going again this year, pending all of the pandemic protocols. Thanks to that crew for joining me. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll wrap this episode 231 here. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.